Hebrews chapter 2 and I want to draw your attention especially to the words found in verse 9. We see Jesus. We see Jesus. These words are kind of a climax thus far in the study of this epistle. It's a kind of Mount Pisgah experience. We've been going upwards and now there's a kind of a climax. The apostle has held back that use of the name Jesus. And he's held back this particular verb to see until this point. And now he says it. We, we Christians, we see Jesus. It's unusual for Paul to do that. The thing that marks all his epistles at verse 1. He gets the name Jesus in every time. And also the name Christ as well, I should add. But he spaces it out here. He's kept the name Jesus to this point. He's spoken about the Son of God. He's spoken about him as Lord. He's used other names. But this name, he's held back to this point. As he holds back the name Christ until the third chapter. There is something important here in these words. These words, they kind of sum up this section. We see Jesus. In fact, they sum up the whole epistle. That's what the whole epistle is about. Every chapter, as it surveys the Old Testament, Paul is always saying, we see Jesus. The Jews don't. But we Christians, we see Jesus. It's very important. And that's what the whole Bible is all about. That's why the Bible exists. We believe in the Christian church. The Old Testament as well as the New Testament. To show us Jesus. To show us Jesus Christ our Lord. And this verb involves us. The see. You, we. Uh, The apostle is always using this we to to describe us. Us Christians, us believers. We see Jesus. Jesus. And we ought to see him. And we should want to be seeing him. And we should want to see him more often and more clearly. So we have seen him and we are seeing him. And through grace we are going to continue to see him. If you're an unconverted sinner, you'll not be saved until you begin to see him. You can't be saved without seeing Jesus. But the day you become a believer... This is what you can say. We see him. We see Jesus. So these are very important words. And Paul writes these words because this is what believers almost 2,000 years ago needed. They needed to be seeing Jesus all the time. They needed to be reminded of what they had a clear view of whenever they were always coming to the scriptures. You have to remember, and I'll come back to this again, no doubt throughout the sermon, but you have to remember that these early believers, these Hebrew believers, that they were being attacked by the Jews for their faith. Their faith was being assailed. There were Jews in the synagogue who would attack them on their view of the Old Testament scriptures and would try to make them doubt and would try to say, Jesus isn't in the Old Testament. That you're not interpreting the Old Testament right. Christians would be reproached for believing in a man who died on a cross. 
They would be reproached for having a Messiah who suffered such shame. Who tasted death. The way that he tasted death in that agony and shame of Roman crucifixion. The most horrible death. The most shameful death. And believers would be reproached for this. That that's your Messiah. That's not in the Old Testament. And now he's gone. And you can't even see him. You say he's raised from the dead. But how do we know? He can't be seen. It's not visible. It's not appearing to our eyes. We don't see him. And so Paul is writing this to strengthen them. We see Jesus. And what he means is we see him as fulfillment. We see him as fulfillment of the Old Testament. We see him as completion. We see Jesus as he's seen in Psalm 8 and as he's seen in all these other verses that the Apostle quotes from and as he's seen throughout the whole Old Testament scriptures. We see him as a man. Yes, we see him as a man made lower than angels. But made lower than angels for the purpose of death. That he might taste death. The way that he did taste death. In that shameful horrible agony. For us sinners. That he might die for us. That he might suffer for us. That he might reconcile us to God. That he might purge our sins. And we see him crowned now with honour and glory. And reigning in heaven at the right hand of the Father. As Psalm 110 teaches. We see Jesus. We see him. He's brought us into a new world. And 2,000 years later, this word is no less timely. It doesn't change throughout the Christian church. Every time we come to our Old Testament, this word hits us. And we confess it. We see Jesus. We see him. So this is a word we have to speak every day to ourselves. This is a word we have to speak every day when we read our Bibles, especially the Old Testament Scriptures. This is a word we have to say to ourselves when our faith is attacked, when we feel low, whenever we're being assailed, whenever the devil attacks us, whenever we have doubts and fears. This is the word we have to say. We see Jesus. We say that. We see Jesus. But you know, the Jews, they don't say that. They they say the opposite. We don't see Jesus. That's the difference between the Jews and Christians. In our Old Testament, we see Jesus. And the Jews, we don't see Jesus. Now, Jesus, of course, means Savior. It means the Lord is salvation. I shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people. The Lord who saves his people. And it's a Hebrew word. It's a word of Hebrew origin. And it is the word Joshua in Hebrew. And Jesus is the new Joshua. He is the better Joshua. He is the last Joshua. We see him. He's the one who brings us into the reality. He's the one who brings us into the true land of promise. Into the substance. You Jews are just still dealing with shadows and types and pictures. You haven't got a Joshua. But we have a Joshua. We see Joshua. And he brings us into the better, into the new, into the world to come, into the inheritance of salvation, into the great, the so great salvation 
beyond anything that the first Joshua ever wrought. We see our Joshua. And so we are to see Jesus, for he alone does this, no one else. Only Christians see him. And that's what makes us different from Jews. They still, as Paul says, they have a veil over their minds. Even though the Old Testament is read every week in the synagogue, they have a veil over their mind and they don't see Jesus. But we do. And how do we see him and where do we see him? We see him by faith. And we see him through the word. Now this verb, to see, its first occurrence, you you will notice that before it, there is another see, verse 8, at the end of verse 8, but now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. It's the same English word, but it's not the same Greek word. It's two different verbs here for seeing. The sense is, the scene in verse 8 is, is a literal scene, a physical scene. The kind of scene that the Jews want to see. A physical scene, a real scene, something material before them. And they say, we don't see all things put under him. We don't see the world in control, being controlled in peace throughout all the earth. We don't see everything being subject to a man. We don't see order, but we see, still see disorder and chaos. We don't see a man who has this kind of dominion anymore. And any dominion a man has, it's limited and faulty and it's changeable. To physical eyes, there's no change. There's no control. There's no dominion. There's no blessedness and reign of peace throughout all the earth. There's no utopia on the earth. There's no millennium on the earth. The Jews say, we don't see that. But Paul says, we see Jesus. He has the fulfillment of all that. He has brought that in at the right hand of the Father. And he will bring it to its consummation one day. This is what the Apostle is saying here. We see Jesus. It's a different kind of scene. It's a scene by faith. Because we don't see him physically. We don't see him visibly. Of course not. It's a scene by faith. It's a scene in the word of the gospel. It's that that scene of chapter 11. Which the Apostle comes to deal with later on. that, That scene of faith. That kind of scene that Moses had. Seeing him who's invisible. That kind of faith that Abel had. That kind of faith that Noah had. That kind of faith that all the saints of God had. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing physical and visible about it. But it was true faith. Because it was built on the word of God and of promise. And this epistle was written to make Christians. To help them to see Jesus better. And that's its central theme. And that's why there's so many Old Testament references. So many Old Testament quotes. So many allusions to the Old Testament ceremony. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. We see Jesus. That's the thread throughout the whole sermon of this epistle to the Hebrews. Going back to Judaism. Going back to the old. Going back to the shadows. That's foolish. That's wrong. That's nonsense. There's only one preventative. To stop you going back to Judaism. To stop you going back to wanting to see something physical. To see something in Jerusalem. To see something in a temple. To want to go back to see that is wrong. We see Jesus. We see him as fulfillment. We see him as the last Adam. We see him as the last Joshua. We see him as the last 
Moses. We see him as the last great high priest. We see him as our all in all. And that's what Paul is meaning. He's always coming back to this seeing Jesus. And he repeats it again and again throughout his epistle. He uses different verbs. But he says the same thing. Hebrews 3 verse 1. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. You don't see him in Jerusalem. You don't see him wearing those colorful garments that the high priest wears. But he's our high priest. And he's in a better temple. And he's in a higher temple. And he's in the only temple that matters. The temple above. We're not concerned about a temple in Jerusalem. We're not concerned about a high priest below here. Ministering in a material temple. We have fulfillment. We have reality. We have completion. We have the true. We have what it's all about. We see Jesus. And he's the minister of a true tabernacle. The heavenly tabernacle. Paul goes on to say this. And he's saying things like that time and time again. Consider him looking on to Jesus, he says. Consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp. Him. Always this Christ-centeredness. To try to explain what Paul is doing here, you have to imagine a Hebrew Christian church and maybe a pastor or elders coming to Paul and they're saying to Paul, you know, our, our flock is having great trouble because the Jews are pestering them. The Jews are coming to them and persuading them things that are contrary to the gospel. They're saying things like, you Christians, you don't have literal fulfillment. You don't have the kingdom. The kingdom is not restored. Messiah is not in Jerusalem reigning on a throne. Messiah is not the high priest in Jerusalem amongst us. You don't have fulfillment, you Christians. You don't have literal fulfillment. You don't have the reality. They're saying to us, these Jews, the Old Testament is not fulfilled. The batter is not brought in. That the last has not yet come at all. The Jews are telling them that. The Jews are saying to the Christians, you don't interpret the Old Testament right. You don't interpret it literally. You don't interpret it physically. You don't interpret the Bible right, you Christians. And we don't see Jesus in it. And so that's what they have to contend with, these Christian believers, about the interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures and whether Jesus has fulfilled that or not. What are we going to do, Paul? They're struggling. Some of us are thinking of even going back to Judaism and giving it in Christian religion altogether, going back to the temple and going back to these shadows and waiting for a, a visible and the physical kingdom to come. What are we going to do, Paul? I, I imagine something like that is taking place. And Paul comes among this little group. Psalm 110. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make all your enemies your footstool. And he opens up the whole Psalm 110. Talks about this great high priest that's at the right hand of God. This priest after the order of Melchizedek. Sitting and reigning now. We're not waiting for him to come and reign. We're not waiting for him to come to Jerusalem. He's reigning now. Coming to Jerusalem and reigning in Jerusalem would be a step down. But he's reigning in heaven. He's reigning at the right hand of God. We have fulfillment. We have completion. We have better. We have reality. 
we see Jesus. And Psalm 110 is his main text. He's always quoting from it throughout this epistle. You'll notice he doesn't respond to this Judaism by saying what the so-called dispensationists say. Oh, they say the kingdom's postponed. The, the church is just a temporary age in between time. The kingdom age will come at the, uh, later on whenever the Lord Jesus comes back again. He'll come back again. They'll build the temple again. He'll, he'll reign in Jerusalem again. He'll set up the high priesthood in Jerusalem again. And we'll have it physically and we'll have it visibly. Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't use the dispensational argument to deal with the Old Testament scriptures. He says we have it. We go to the heavenly Jerusalem. We go to the Zion above. We have a great high priest who's gone into the reality. Gone into the tabernacle made made without hands in the heaven above. We can go to heaven. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. We can go right into heaven itself. We can go boldly right to the throne of grace. We have the better. We have the reality. Though it's only seen by faith. We see Jesus. So that's the response to that. Christians simply respond and say, we see Jesus crucified for us, risen for us, ascended for us, reigning for us now in heaven. The kingdom has come. And he's brought us into his kingdom of gospel light. And he reigns. And he's gathering us all in for the great consummation, the great marriage supper of the Lamb when we'll sit down with him in the consummation and the fulfillment of the kingdom. But it's begun now. And you don't get in unless you see Jesus. So Christians embattled with Jewish literalism need to see Jesus in his person and work and position now in the heavenly temple. Christ as the head of the new world, the new creation, the need to see him. And they need to hear again those words of his, it is finished. And he's entered into his rest. That means he is reigning over his people. He's resting, he's reigning. The work is finished and he's just waiting to the consummation. Sit down until I make all your enemies your footstool. That's the day of consummation when it's completed. But he's resting now in the finished work. It was all done on the cross and at the resurrection. So we need to see Jesus in the Old Testament. We need to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. As completion. As reality. And we do. So this is our battle cry. All this to the Jewish interpretation. We see Jesus. We see Jesus. Now, this seeing Jesus reminds me of, of two portions of Scripture, two passages in actual fact in the Gospel. It reminds me of a little man called Zacchaeus. Just a little man. And you remember it says concerning him, he sought to see Jesus. He sought to see Jesus. He, he couldn't because he was little and there's a big press of the crowd. And what he did was he climbed up into a tree to see Jesus. And you know, we have to do that. This epistle to the Hebrews is, is a bit like that. We want to see Jesus, but it's not easy. You have to be prepared to claim. To claim to study the scriptures. And especially the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews is like that. It's like a Mount Pisgah. Yes, you have to claim it. It's not easy. It's difficult. 
I find this one of the most difficult texts in the Bible. Now, it's my favorite book, but it's the most difficult book. It's a mountain. It's a climb. And if it's difficult for the preacher to climb it and to go up it and to spend all those hours turning around in your mind trying to get what the apostle is saying, trying to make the ascent with him, and then to come here with a half an hour of a sermon to preach and to try to get that across to you so that you will ascend with me, it's difficult. It isn't easy. It's a very hard epistle. But it has rewards if you're prepared to climb if you're prepared to put the effort in, if you have the attitude of Zacchaeus, I want to see Jesus. I'm just a little man with the epistle to the Hebrews. What am I with the epistle to the Hebrews? I don't have the intellect of the Apostle Paul. I don't have the, the spiritual theological mind, the biblical theological mindset the Apostle Paul has when he preaches. I don't have that. I'm just a little man. But if we have the desire and we keep saying, we see Jesus, and we're prepared to make the claim, we'll be blessed. You'll be blessed if you study this epistle. You'll be blessed if you get its text into your heart. And this will be the result. You will see Jesus. You'll begin to see him in all the Old Testament scriptures. You'll become what is called a biblical theologian, seeing Christ in the Bible, understanding the Bible the way the Christian church understands it, the way of truth and reality. And so it's like Mount Pisgah, a hard climb, but wow, when you get there, you see Christ. You see Christ. You see, we we live in a fast food mentality. And it's that same attitude with the Bible. You know, people come in to visit, I just want the simple gospel, I don't know what that means. Ten minute sermon, I don't know what it means really. But you can't come in here with that kind of mentality to see Jesus. You have to claim Pisgah. You have to claim the mountaintops of Hebrews to get the view, to see. To see the Old Testament in a new light. To see the Old Testament the way you ought to see it. You have to claim this epistle. And you have to put in the work and the effort and you have to pray all the time, Lord, I would see Jesus. I would have understanding to see Christ in the scriptures. I want to see him the way he should be seen. And so we have to to pray that. To see the Old Testament, to see the new and the better in all its glory. And it's wonderful to see, but as I said, it, it is a hard claim. But we have to make the effort, brethren and sisters, by being here week by week. I try to make it as simple as, and that's probably part of my battle in preparing messages, to try to get it down so that even a child could understand it. And it's difficult, and that's a large part of the preparation of a sermon. So pray for me that I may be helped to let you see Jesus. But also pray for yourself. Come and week by week and pray. Have the spirit of prayer about it. Have the attitude of Zacchaeus. Be prepared to claim. Read the epistle during the week. You know I'm going to be in chapter 2 for a few weeks. Read it. Get the text. Get the words into your mind. So, so the preacher isn't always having to point them out and spend the time. You know the words. So make the claim. With this desire in your heart to see Jesus. I'm praying all the way 
And you will. You'll be blessed. You'll be blessed. And you need it. You need it for your soul. You need to see him in all the temptations and trials of life. This is the real antidote for all that we will ever have to face. Seeing Jesus Christ by faith the way that we ought. The other passage is John chapter 12. You remember the Greeks. There were certain Greeks that they were at the temple. And they came up to worship at one of the feasts. And they came to an apostle. His name was Philip. They said to Philip, Sir, we would see Jesus. We would see Jesus. This is these same words. So they came to an apostle. They came to a good man. They came to the right man. They came to the apostolic authority. And we have to come to the apostles to see Jesus. We're not going to see him anywhere else. And we are so blessed to have this epistle of the apostle Paul to the Hebrews. The very intention of it is is to make us see Jesus. So we're coming to the right place. We're coming to the apostle. We're coming to the apostolic authority. We're coming to the words of the apostles to see Jesus. And we ought to be praying we would see Jesus. Now we don't pray that to Paul. We're not praying to the apostle. But we are coming to his, his words. And we're praying to the Lord. And we're saying, Lord, we want to see Christ. That's the way I want you to come to this epistle every week. I want you to pray that every week. Every time we're coming to this to say, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Christ. So we have to claim in in the study, the reading of the text, we also have to claim in prayer and beseeching God. And we do see Jesus. But we can see him better. We can always see him better. And this is a wonderful epistle to help us to do that. I want to finish with a story. You'll be saying you're a bit different than night preacher. Even giving us stories. You don't normally give us stories. But I do trust that this story will be helpful. It is a story that I read. Or perhaps I maybe heard it. In a sermon of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I can't recall. It was many, many years ago. But many years ago. Even before Martin Lloyd-Jones. There was a missionary. Who enjoyed marvelous revival blessings. In the land in which he was a missionary. I don't know what land it was. I don't know the name of the missionary. But he experienced God's blessing. In the mission field where he labored. And he came home. As as missionaries in those days did. After maybe five or six years. For a rest for a break. And to go round to churches. Whenever he came home on this occasion. He felt it was his purpose. To tell the British congregations about the great work of God in the land where he labored, about the blessings of the Lord, about the conversion of souls, about the blessing of the saints, about the spirituality of the congregations and how they were on fire and how the Lord was blessing them. He told the stories and the anecdotes of God's blessing in the mission field where he labored. And the meetings were great, and there were wonderful times, and the people loved to hear all of those stories. But that missionary noticed something when he was going around these British churches. They weren't like the churches where he preached in the foreign mission field. There was something missing, something lacking. Yes, they loved the stories of revival. They liked to hear all these testimonies of the Lord's blessing, And he knew that they were enjoying those stories. But he began to realize that they themselves were not enjoying the blessings. 
that the churches where he labored in the foreign field were enjoying. There wasn't the same spiritual joy. There wasn't the same love for the Lord. There wasn't the same liberty in prayer. There wasn't the same spiritual appetite. He discerned this. He detected a spiritual famine at home, a deadness. Anyway, he went back to the mission field and he continued to do what he was best at, preaching Christ amongst the people and the blessings continued. But then after a number of years passed again, it was time to come back home again and to go around the churches. And this time he resolved differently. He resolved to do simply what he did on the mission field. Not to tell them stories and reports, but to preach Christ. Just to preach Jesus. The way he did on the mission field. That They needed what they had on the mission. They needed the blessings. They needed the quickenings. And he thought that the best way to do that was to do what he did on the mission field. Preach Jesus. And so he came home and went around the churches with the determination just to preach Christ. So that the people could say, we see Jesus. And he did that. Like the Apostle Paul. But he was disappointed with the response. That's the sad thing. And the people were coming to him afterwards and they were telling of their disappointment. And they said, oh, we hoped that you would tell us the stories of blessing. We hoped that you would give us the reports of revival. We hope to hear these good reports, these anecdotes. Needless to say, it grieved him at his heart. And it showed him the spiritual dearth even more clearly of the churches back at home. They were disappointed. Christ was preached to them. The same preaching that led to revival in the foreign mission field where he labored. He endeavored the same amongst them. And they were disappointed. It didn't do them. It wasn't enough. And that was proof to him of the spiritual dearth in the congregations. And I wonder, do we have that here? Is there a cry for something more? If there's a Christ-centered sermon, if there's going through a Christ-centered epistle, is there disappointment? Is there a cry for something more? We, We need something more. Just give us a simple gospel and something else with it to fill up the time. Oh, let us not be like that people of God. Let's be content with Christ being preached. Let's come here every week saying we would see Jesus. Expect your preacher to preach Christ to you. Be disappointed if he doesn't preach Christ to you. That you may encounter him in his word. And that we might be a people hungry for the word. A people prepared to climb difficult texts such as I'm facing here in this epistle. That we might see Jesus. So every week come here saying, Preacher, show us Christ. Give us the true biblical theology of Scripture. Give us what it's all about. We know it's hard work for you, Preacher, to do that in us. We're just little people. We're just, it's a case. But we're prepared to claim. We're prepared to work along with you. We're prepared to read the text. We're prepared to read a commentary or two. We're prepared even to listen to somebody else now and again on sermon audio. We're prepared to help you and to aid you. 
but at least have that desire. We want to see Jesus.